Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Gobeski Wallace Report. My name is Charlie Wallace. I'm Adam Gobeski, and welcome to our new semi-regular, occasional, not sure how much we'll do this, but uh, our new occasional sub-program series. (laughs) (laughs) What do you call this? It's not really a march. Exactly. Yeah, it's not a march. It goes on indefinitely. It's a series? Yeah. Series, yeah. It's like a All limited right. edition spinoff series. <laughs> it's a backdoor pilot to another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think that's true because this will remain integrated. <laughs> true. <laughs> but uh, yeah, welcome to our new occasional series, Sci-Fi Shuffle, where we discuss science fiction movies in no particular order, hence the shuffle. And today we're going to be discussing here at the first episode of the Sci-Fi Shuffle. Figured we'd start with a, a real classic, and that's the 1968 film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And here to help us discuss that, we have two guests, Kevin Vredevote. Hello, excited to be here. And Paul Wilcox. It's it's great to be back as Paul Wilcox. Well, you, th- you, th- you think you're going to be giving your own opinions and not Frankie Muniz's just, opinions? <laughs> yeah, I'm just ready. <laughs> I, I just never know who I'm going to be. <laughs> so, yeah, this is basically a, a sub podcast in the greater Gobeski Wallace report. <laughs> Again, I don't know how to <laughs> properly phrase this. It'll come to me once we stop recording. Real, I'll be like, oh, that's what I should have said. A real subcast. Yeah, a very <laughs> special episode. Very special episode set. Um, I don't remember what I was saying. Oh, yeah, this is just an excuse to talk about science fiction movies. Since cinematic respect is dead because Charlie refuses to fix the website. <laughs> That's not why. <laughs> the website worked for years after I stopped. It's why now. <laughs> it wasn't always why. <laughs> so the basic format here is we're just going to discuss the movie. It'll be a lot like the Mary Marvel movie march, except we're not marching to any particular destination. Well, I was going to say it won't get as crazy, but I guess I can't actually guarantee that. (laughs) I'm sure there are some (laughs) sci-fi movies that... uh... We're going to watch weird... Well, we will. Yeah, I I think so. Yeah. It's up to us. Planets next. Oh, nice. (laughs) And then the twist is that uh, at the end of each episode, uh, one of our guests or one of our hosts, uh, I guess it kind of depends on how recently guests have been on and such, but they will pick the next movie in the series for us to watch for the next episode. So that's exciting. I hope I haven't tested this yet, so I don't know. I like the idea. We've talked about it at least once on the podcast. So I guess the first question that I have is, do I need to be planking right now, Charlie? That's not part of the, I guess, mandate of this special series. Snow. <laughs> That's that's okay. sci-fi swole. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but we could activate that anytime you wish, but I already went not. to the gym today, so I think I'm okay All for right. now. But <laughs> not that I'm discouraging people from planking if they choose. <laughs> no, this is a no planking podcast. <laughs> yeah, I I just, I just really have a lot of, you know, moral problems with planking. <laughs> What if I plank, but on my back? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. Just, you know, arms up in front of me. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) like still very rigid. Yeah, still the plank Just flipped over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. As long as you're at the gym doing it. (laughs) It's like, just now I'm envisioning like human past the pigs. 
Like, <laughs> I'm, I've graduated. I've graduated from planks to leaning jowlers. <laughs> so I thought we would start with 2001 because it's uh, it's pretty much one of the seminal science fiction motion pictures out there. There's a UK magazine called Sight and Sound that every 10 years releases a poll of what at the time are considered to be the greatest movies of all time, which they basically do by just a whole bunch of people send in top 10 lists. And then just depending on how many times movies appear, that helps rank them. Uh, it's not perhaps the most scientific survey and one should definitely not treat it as gospel, but as a sort of idea of like what people think are good movies. It's a useful sort of shorthand. And the reason I bring this up is that in December of 2022, the most recent version of this came out, and 2001 A Space Odyssey was actually number six on that list overall. And then if you just take the directors and then what they chose and the director's poll, 2001 was actually number one. Oh. So it's the highest ranked uh, science fiction film on, uh, on the list, and so it seemed like it'd be a worthy candidate to start it out with. And we were not going to do the, did you see it before? Or, I mean, I think that's a useful question. So, yeah, I think it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask if you'd seen a movie before. And some movies I think we'll all have seen. And some movies maybe none of us have seen. And, yeah, maybe we should have a conversation at some point about what counts as science fiction. Which is to say, probably, if you think it's science fiction, that probably has a good shot. Uh, I don't know if we'll do, like, high fantasy movies, necessarily. Things like Conan the Barbarian might be out, but... Uh, How about Steampunk? Mm. <laughs> I can't think of a lot of examples. There was that one about all the cities on, uh, like, moving cities. What movie was that? Did anyone see oh, that one? Oh, his... Oh, shoot. If you said the name, I would know it. Yeah. Mortal Engines? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think probably. I mean, maybe we could have the conversation about whether or not movies on the fringes count or not. Like, do certain superhero movies count? Like, is for example, is Iron Man science fiction? I mean... I'd say the original was. Yeah. Once we got into magic, I think things kind of drifted away from that. But the original Iron Man, I think, ticks all the boxes. I think uh, what we can do is, if somebody tries to suggest a movie and someone has an objection... To whether it's science fiction or not, then we argue. That might yeah, be the easiest way. Uh, <laughs> yeah, classic, a classic group text <laughs> argument. Are <laughs> you not going to wait till the, we're about ready to watch the podcast? So, has everyone watched Iron Man? Um, I object. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got to see it to object. You know. So. <laughs> Hold on, I'm going to go watch it. Be right back. All right. Just had you seen 2001 before? I'll start. Yes, I've seen 2001. I have it on DVD. I've probably watched it seven times, maybe eight times. I saw it most recently before this. There was like a re-release recently that I don't remember what the reason. Yeah, I don't remember what the reason for the re-release was. But yeah, I went and saw NIMAX. Well, if it was 2018, that would be 50 years later. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably the reason. I don't know if there was a difference in like the... Uh, I actually read up film about it. I think they struck a new print from the camera negative or something like that. Gotcha. Um, I think Christopher Nolan supervised it. About yeah, all that sounds hmm. right. So, so you've seen it in theaters. I have. I took the opportunity. How is it as a theatrical experience compared it was to viewing? Amazing. I loved it. I thought it was. Yeah, I thought it was very different experience seeing it in the theater. It's such a visual movie that 
I mean, I guess all movies are. Really. I'm, I'm going to make that clarification myself. Does, does your TV, are you sure your TV works okay? Charlie? I mean, when I'm at home, I just close my eyes and I just listen to the dialogue. So I always thought I always thought this movie was boring for the first 20 minutes. <laughs> just a bunch of monkeys. You just stop right at like at the overture and just assumed that that was gonna be what the rest of the movie was just like. Also, Sprock that Zarathustra followed by monkeys howling for five minutes, followed by also Sprock Zarathustra. <laughs> but yes, I've seen it. Uh, I have not seen it as many times as that. I've seen it. I know I've seen it twice all the way through, maybe three times. It's hard to know what I watched as a kid and that how much I paid attention. And if I had the patience to sit through the whole thing, like I know I'd seen parts of the movie more than just those two times, but as an entire viewing experience, I think it's only been really twice that I can pick out. And both times I sent you guys a text about this last night, but both times we're on HD DVD. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, according to the little handout inside, is the look and sound of perfect. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I had never seen this before prior to the, the viewing last night. I think I started it at one point. The the ape portion of the movie seemed faintly familiar, but I, I definitely never watched it from start to finish. You were just like waiting for Charlton Heston to... <laughs> very disappointed once we got into space yes get away from my monolith damn dirty apes <laughs> shouldn't leave this unattended our monolith all along damn you apes I have seen this uh, I don't know if I have an exact count it's probably a similar number of times as Charlie I got really into it as a young teenager, probably about sixth, seventh grade, watched it in various formats, and then yeah, got the DVD and watched that in the days when uh, when DVDs were a novel format. Even so I think I saw it in the theater too in that re-release. But do you have the 4K release? That's the question. Uh, I actually don't. It's been oh. one that I've kind of. It's on like the top of my list of like 4K movies to pick up. I just always forget to get that list out to people when Christmas comes around. Like that's wow. like my go-to Christmas list. Like, okay, 4K Blu-rays. <laughs> but I always end up picking things like you know, like Doom or like Resident Evil box set or something instead of uh, you know, worthy uh, cinema. 2001. Uh, <laughs> eh, give me the Rock. <laughs> <laughs> there's you know, there's extra footage in this guy in this uh, release. <laughs> I yeah, also you were have seen a... a stage production of this at the Riverwalk Theater in Lansing. Oh. How? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like what? How is that It possible? was really novel. It was very... <laughs> what were the last 30 minutes of the production like? Just people rolling around on the ground or... Just you know, running with streamers. Yeah, I, I do not remember how they ended it. Like, I mostly remember, like, the guy who played Hal crying out as he you know finished singing daisy and that may have been like pretty close to the end of the show i think they abridged the end pretty well yeah there's no more movie after this anyway it's fine (laughs) (laughs) maybe he said like my god it's full of stars or something and then just like curtains fell (laughs) (laughs) there you go 
Like, I, but I, yeah, you were uh, telling us in a previous episode that you actually have autographs from Gary Lockwood and Kier Delay. Yes, I do. I met them at somewhere around the turn of the millennium uh, Novi Comic Convention. I got both their autographs on a nice uh, on a nice photo when they're in the pod speaking to each other with Hal through the wit in the window in the background with uh, each of their autographs on that. Yeah, I actually didn't have enough money for both autographs, so uh, Gary Lockwood gave me uh, gave me his for free because I was just a kid with cash in my wallet, you know. <laughs> Pure delay wasn't going to stand for that. <laughs> you know, I think he was just, he was a little more reserved than Gary Lockwood is more what it was. Like Gary was like, yeah, just give him the, you know, we'll do, you know, just take $20 and we'll give him both autographs. <laughs> I'm sure they discussed the good cop, bad cop dynamic long before you got there. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, see this kid? But yeah, that was that was really cool, and I also read the books except three thousand. Me too. I somehow I got to three thousand one and just petered out. I guess. Well, because I know I read it at the school library, and mm. they at the time I was reading, it, I don't think three thousand one had quite come out yet. Oh, okay. And now that I think about it, I don't know if this was a school library. It might have actually just been the public, the Grand Ledge Public Library. But in any event, they only had the first three books. Wow. So was was this movie an adaptation of that book series, or was it written alongside this movie? So great question. Thank you for the uh, the setup. Happy um, to set up. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Arthur C. Clarke had written a story in the fifties called The Sentinel that was basically about people go to the moon and they discover a really old artificial artifact buried under the moon, and that's basically the gist of that story and so stanley kubrick decided he wanted to make a science fiction movie my understanding was something like his goal was like make the best science fiction movie of all time as opposed to like you know a b movie sort of thing or like ants attack or whatever aliens invade um somehow he got into contact with arthur c clark and they sort of agreed to work on it together so they were kind of throwing ideas back and forth. They were pulling in ideas from some of Arthur Clarke's other stories, both published and unpublished. Uh, apparently this actually led to a bit of friction because Arthur C. Clarke was like, so can I publish my stories? And Stanley Kubrick was like, no, you signed a contract that says you can't do that until the movie comes out. <laughs> <laughs> and so one of the things that Arthur C. Clarke did was he was kind of writing the novel as they worked on it but he didn't see the final cut before he finished his novel so there actually are some differences between the novel and stuff i think kubrick at one point likened it to him working on the script and then seeing some of the rushes of stuff they'd filmed but not actually seeing a finished product Hmm. when he was writing the thing and clark has has said something along the lines of the movie should probably be credited story Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. And the book is Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick, just in terms of like input from each individual and the relative mediums. Did I get that roughly right, Charlie, person who was supposed to do the research? Well, yeah, I did some research as well. And I think one thing that's worth saying about this movie is that 
There is so much background that listeners should certainly be advised that we're not going to be able to cover everything or <laughs> get anything like everything right either. So there'll certainly be corrections in the blog posts and things if we happen to get things wrong. But yeah, yeah. I spent probably like an hour reading about this as well and then got to the end of that research and was like, I should probably look up Stanley Kubrick's uh, filmography because I don't know what order he made things. And I'm like, I haven't even looked that up yet. <laughs> like, there's no way. I mean, there's. So this was know, the movie he did after Doctor Strangelove. Is that yeah, right? Yep. Yeah. So he's well into his career and pretty um, well acclaimed at this point. But there's like he hasn't done The Shining. I don't think he's done Barry Lyndon. So yeah, Shining's 1980. Barry Lyndon's 70s at some point. Yeah. 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 But he's done like Paths of Glory, right? Yeah, Lolita, Spartacus. Guy. Yeah. Yeah, but one of the things I read was that. Uh, Stanley Kubrick was trying to make this as visual a movie as possible, which is to say he wanted people to sort of each audience member to sort of come to their own particular interpretations of it. He didn't want to impose a particular viewpoint on what people saw. So when I called it a very visual movie earlier, you shouldn't have laughed at me. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's still funny when you say it. I'm not Stanley Kubrick. Okay. <laughs> Point taken. <laughs> and well, but part of what I, what we just, I think we both mean by that. And it's just funnier when it comes from Charlie, I guess, um, is that he, <laughs> he made an effort to like minimize any exposition, you know, huge sections of this movie have no dialogue. I think it's something like the last spoken line of the movie is like 25 to 30 minutes from the end of the movie. Like, apparently there were explanations for some stuff like, why does Hal actually go crazy? What is the monolith doing? What's happening at the end that he just was cutting stuff out because he was like, you know what? I don't want to hold the audience's hand. I want them to experience this as art, which to uh, reference a cinematic respect episode that you can't listen to anymore because it's no longer on the website. Because the <laughs> You got to go to the dark web. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's on archive. Um <laughs> But uh, this may be one of the reasons that uh, Andrei Tarkovsky sort of reacted strongly to this and thought 2001 wasn't that great. And he was going to do his own better version with Solaris. Oh, right. Yeah. So that's a very general version of the background. Uh, Let's talk about the movie itself as it's ultimately presented to us. I assume everyone watched the, the longer version with the intermission and the overture and yeah, I really had call an the closing stuff music. Yeah, I watched the HBO Max version, which I think skipped the overture and then had like an abbreviated intermission, but it definitely had the music at the end, which I didn't feel was horrible just because I'd seen it enough times that I knew that that was there. Well, apparently this actually mirrors some of the multiple cuts that were available theatrically. Uh, the one that's on most home video formats, at least nowadays, is uh, I believe it's the Roadshow version. And Roadshow movies were a phenomenon of like the 60s that were like big, long movies. Think things like It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, stuff like that, where part of it is the spectacle and just the length. And so one of the things that Roadshow movies did was they had on tracks, they had overtures, they had intermissions, that kind of stuff. But apparently... Because he knew not all theaters were going to do roadshow versions, he actually sent instructions 
this is what I read. He sent instructions to theaters to say, this is what you should cut if you want to cut stuff. Oh. And it was stuff like cut the intermission and cut the overture and things like that. I remember when I went to see this a couple of years ago, I asked them at the ticket counter, like, does, does this have an intermission? And they were like, I, I, I just take tickets. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to know because... I was speculating. I was wondering if one of the reasons Paul loves this movie so much is because it has an intermission in the middle. Because I, I wanted to know if that. I could, I wanted to know if I could get a soda. <laughs> <laughs> there was a natural break in the middle, <laughs> and there was sneak out for a bathroom break and a refill. Yeah, exactly. Top up the popcorn. Get, get a get, get a half layer of butter while your popcorn's like halfway down. You know. Were were intermissions still a semi-standard part of movies when this was initially released, or was that very Kubricky of him to add? Like I said, that was a thing that Roadshow pictures oh, okay. movies that were sort of designed to be taken from city to city to watch. That was sort of standard for those sorts of things, and so I think in this sense, Kubrick's just—is it Kubrick or Kubrick? Uh, I think I've heard it both ways. I'm leaning towards Kubrick. Just because that's what sticks in my mind, but let's let's look it up. Stanley Bublik. <laughs> uh, it's actually a soft K. <laughs> Gublik. It's it's Goobler. <laughs> uh, it says Kubrick actually. Oh, Kubrick. Cool. All right. So I think that's just Kubrick kind of following in that sort of tradition. Because one of the things that this movie was designed to do was to show off the new Cinerama very large projection sort of like the IMAX of its day. I think this was mm. the second movie to be a Cinerama film after or like movie movie to be a Cinerama film after How the West Was Won, I believe. Well yeah, let's uh I know I said we would do it and then we immediately didn't do it, but let's talk about the movie. <laughs> Broken into roughly four sections and that first section is about the dawn of man as a on-screen title tells us. So what do we think of the actors in the suits? What actors in the suits? You mean those aren't real uh, homo <laughs> erectus? Uh, were there a few actual, like... The baby ones. I don't ones. know what the right yeah. word is. There were, the baby ones were indeed. Okay. That's yeah, yeah there was a shot. I remember thinking that, too. I was like, there's no babies. You don't see any babies until, like, after the whole, you know, after the monolith, I thought. I think when You see one before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. After they get okay. chased away from the water. You do see an actor holding one of the the little ones too when oh okay cave, I think. See, see. yeah mm-hmm. yeah okay and i take it that was a real trained um jaguar or whatever that was Leopard. oh Leopard. yeah yeah yep. i had that question too. that actually that <laughs> just <laughs> happened on set they had the cameras rolling so they decided to keep it in i <laughs> <laughs> actually getting mauled by real snuff film <laughs> But yeah, I definitely saw that part and had questions. Yeah, I'm just like, how did they do that? Yeah, it was trained, yeah, I and I think they said they got it on like the second take or something. Wow. The first one, it might have been a little bit too excited, but it's a legitimate mauling. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it was funny too to see like the reflections in its eyes and like just having a cat being like, "Yep, that's how it works." <laughs> if you shine a light in a cat's eyes, it just like glows back at you. Yeah, apparently that was a happy accident due to how they were doing the back project or front projected um backgrounds they required a lot of light cats have this like reflective layer on the back of their eyes so they can see in the dark so if you shine any light on it it just like looks creepy 
Yes, thank you yeah. for explaining to us how cat eyes work. <laughs> these, the kids these days don't know about, don't have, have never experienced true flash photography. Suppose <laughs> oh. that's true. <laughs> They're not used to, you know, going coming back from the one-hour photo and seeing their demon cat on film. <laughs> so, Kevin, as someone who hadn't seen the movie properly before, how did you feel to get like this opening space sequence with the big Also Sprach Zarathustra? Amongst and, the notes. Yeah, and then I you made. go and then you go to like monkeys. That was the transition itself, it was a little unexpected. Like I said, I did at some point see the monkey part, so I knew it was coming. But like that opening shot was stunning. I mean, from from the very first shot, this movie definitely draws you in. And then again, pulls the rug out under you and you have to watch the monkeys for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, like I said, uh, unexpected, but engaging, I guess. I don't I don't really know how to describe the emotion of expecting a space movie and getting monkeys instead. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at least they kind of like they they hold your hand at least a little bit with the. with the subtitle or, or with the, the title, title card <laughs> and again because i had if there was any part of this i'd seen before i knew that there was going to be like the development of technology at this age like i knew where they were going with it mm-hmm. for someone who was truly coming in blind i i guess i don't know how you would react to that but you know, i have a funny middle school story about coming in blind to that well you which... should keep it to yourself <laughs> so soul of podcast think about things but don't share them i just didn't want to hijack your section kevin no 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 please so i had seen this movie and really liked it i was probably this was probably i was in maybe either sixth or seventh grade somewhere in that uh region and i had seen it and i thought it was great and then i read the book and i told my friend about it and he read the book and really liked it. And I was like, well, we got to watch the movie. And then, you know, we got to the monkey part and the monolith part, you know, with the with the soundtrack and everything. And he just, he he wasn't down with it. He, we shut off the movie. Like, he, <laughs> he just... <laughs> was he deeply upset or was he just like, this is dumb. Why are we watching? This? Like, yeah, was he was the... like, what the heck is this? This isn't anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Because I will say, from basically the the soundtrack playing behind the monolith onward, this movie made me very anxious. And I, I yeah. think it's it was the sound design, it was the visual design, but like I really I keep coming back around to whatever the hell you call what they play every time the monolith is in frame. Because deeply upsetting that I could understand kind of reacting that way to uh, to this. And I I believe that what is that. Uh... I don't know how to say his first name. Stanley? Gregory G- no. Ligeti. Gregory. <laughs> uh, is Gregory Ligeti. Avant-garde, was, you know, I think, like, is what you might call this style of music. Yeah. Is what it looks like. It was definitely like mine and a lot of people's introduction to 20th century. Classical avant-garde music. Avant-garde classical music, yeah. And some of it's altered, but I think most of it is unaltered i think the that's the weird thing about the soundtrack is like correct me if you guys read anything else about this because i'm just going on like old memories Mm -hmm. i thought essentially this was just a slightly you know kind of refined version of the what do they call it when 
when like a director will present like a soundtrack of like pieces that would uh, write a piece that sounds like this temp tracks oh temp tracks yeah so they make a like a list of temp tracks and like hand it to you know your composer to you know capture those similar feelings or whatever and i think essentially this was just a soundtrack of temp tracks that became the real tracks with yeah supposedly he actually he hired a composer to compose a score for this um someone who he'd worked with before whose name i don't recall um but i think he did like uh dr strange love so i remember uh, reading I and I, I you are right there there was an actual score made for this movie but whether this is you know future critics deciding this was his motivation or whether kubrick explicitly said this uh, going back to what you said about kind of presenting this as art and letting whoever was watching make their own interpretations uh the original soundtrack more kind of led you on how you should be feeling about given things as as most Alex soundtracks North, do that is his, that is the composer's name who we hired but yeah kevin's right yeah the uh the soundtrack was a page apparently a little more traditional and that it kind of held your hand and gave you emotional cues and stuff but uh I enjoy the story that uh, Alex North apparently didn't know they hadn't used his score until he went to the premiere. <laughs> oh, man. I also heard the story that while they were do- in the editing process, one of the editors he was working with couldn't stay awake. So they were just playing music over top of it so that he could stay awake. <laughs> and like the Blue Danube waltz was one where they just happened to be playing it at the right time. It's like, we should use that. <laughs> so, yeah, monkeys and monoliths and creepy legacy soundtracks sound looks like that music is called requiem that particular piece when the monolith shows up i really like the first section too be, i mean the whole movie is just a lot of like show don't tell sort of st- well not the whole movie actually this, a long stretch of the movie is show don't tell where it's like okay i i like the part where there's all the other animals like tapirs maybe i think that's what they look yeah. like that are just like kind of hanging out around the monkeys and the monkeys don't really care about them and they don't really care about the monkeys until they learn how to use weapons and the tapers are just still kind of hanging out around them because they haven't evolved (laughs) to be scared of them (laughs) like it's just smart like you can kind of see what's going on and how quickly things are happening and changing that nothing else can adjust to it like the other monkeys can't adjust to it by calling them monkeys sorry the other apes the other hominids can't adjust to it i mean i know i've seen the movie before but the first appearance of the monolith is always really striking to me. The hominid wakes up and he's like, hey, what's going on? And he wakes everyone else up. And then there's a monolith there with the music playing. And I wondered if other people felt similarly. I did feel similarly. I, the thing that always kind of strikes me is that I think they actually built the monolith, right? But it very much looks just the way the blacks and like the lighting on it, it looks kind of like it's painted in it just doesn't quite look like it's supposed to be there absolutely and i i wasn't even sure myself if it was an effect or a physical object until every now and then you could see like a a hand cast a shadow on it that kind of confirmed yup it's it's in shot with them um but however they did it it, they did a very good job of making it otherworldly yeah and so then the monolith at least my interpretation is that the monolith I don't know, expands the hominids' consciousness or moves them forward in such a way that they figure out tools. Yeah, bestows forbidden cosmic knowledge. Yeah, 
And then obviously the first thing that humans, proto-humans do with tools is kill things. Right. <laughs> I, know, I, I love the scene when he's just, when he first picks it up and just is bashing those bones apart. Because at the end he just chucks it in the air. Like, <laughs> that's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the only time he just chucks the bone up in the air after finishing beating up something. <laughs> well, you've never done it before. It's exciting. <laughs> I I agree they do go pretty much straight to murder with the technology, but at least like in the beginning, like the very first thing they do with it is more uh, hunting, which I mean, you know, you can argue the definition of murder as much as you want, but you know, kind of a positive keeping themselves alive, keeping themselves fed, maybe even, uh, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly protecting themselves from future Jaguar attacks um, before the more negative side of them going on the offensive and beating a fellow hominid to death to get their water back. And it is like, you know, I think it comes across pretty well in the movie, but sometimes it's hard to tease things apart uh, having, from what I remember of the book, it's like, it kind of does show you at least how kind of desperate this group of hominids is like they're they're on the verge of starvation they're like barely scrapping making barely making a living you know kind of foraging in there for uh whatever plants are around yeah probably why they chose such a stark kind of landscape to uh, place them in i do like the cut from the bone being thrown into the air to the the satellite kind of transitioning to the next uh bit of the movie Yes, that is one of, I think, the most famous cuts in all of film hmm. is the transition from the bone to the satellite. And I think we're supposed to infer. Well, actually, before I say what I think, well, I, I guess I'm curious to what other people think. What are you supposed to infer? Uh, well, I know from the research I did what that's supposed to be. So I, which I didn't catch on to because it's not really, I guess, explicitly shown in the movie anywhere. Oh, I just assumed we were following technological advancement further and further and further until we get to i mean i guess what is now technically in the past in the year 2001 but you know where where technology got us to to spacecrafts that's what i always thought too yeah that's that's <laughs> kind of what i took away from it as well so apparently at one point it was explicit that the satellites are actually nuclear weapons in orbit and so at one point there was supposed to be more explicitly like this is a more advanced killing bone Oh, interesting. But, but Cooper cut that partly because the last movie he'd done was Dr. Strangelove, which is about nuclear Armageddon. And so he didn't want critics to automatically just assume things. This is the nuke director. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get like, <laughs> cast. <laughs> yeah. And then also partly just to leave it a little more ambiguous. And I know that until I read that, I just had always sort of thought like, yeah, just more advanced tool without necessarily being killing tools but yeah yeah or maybe just a connection of just like oh hey this the fact that we have space travel isn't actually you know that impressive like you know i guess we had bones at one point and now we're in space but it's just more of the same technological advances yeah kept throwing bones higher and higher higher until they stuck there exactly (laughs) (laughs) but yeah that brings us to our second sequence which is the uh i don't remember what the title card says yeah, what does, I it, does it say, like, the moon or something like that? that. Uh, yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, and this is where we're introduced to actual human humans. Homo sapiens sapiens. 
And our main character here in this segment is Dr. Haywood Floyd, played by William Sylvester, who is best known for this movie, honestly. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, I feel like that's the case for a lot of uh, people in this uh, movie. Yeah, I think that's true. And this is the part at which I started taking notes, because it turns out the only notes I basically took was just noting all the product placement. Yeah, oh, that, yeah. I, I don't oh. remember noticing that before. I did not notice that at all as a first-time viewer. So, what, what were they plugging? Well, I don't know if they're plugging things or so much as just branding things. But like the spacecraft that he's traveling on is Pan Am, which uh, <laughs> did not make it to two thousand one. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also an IBM computer. Yeah. The hotel they're in is branded both as Hilton and Howard Johnson. <laughs> uh, when he goes on the video phone, that's. Uh, branded bell system so guess they didn't anticipate the uh, breakup of bell the russians uh have bags that say aeroflot on them which is the russian uh, national airline one of the machines in the in like the shuttle is actually like the food machine is actually branded rca whirlpool which i found particularly interesting wow. because rca whirlpool stopped being a thing in 1966 which is two years before this movie came out. <laughs> but after it started film, I think it was like 65 maybe or 64 it started filming. So. Yeah. Um, the BBC obviously get a look in. And then on the Discovery 1, if you look closely, you can see the General Mills logo when they're getting food out of the thing. Those are all the ones I noticed. But I just thought it was interesting. It's like, yes, we're in the future, but brands and corporations still exist. Right. So, <laughs> But it's, I don't know. It's kind of interesting because it makes it a more accessible future in a way than if it had just been all like gleaming white, like that hotel is things like that. That was my opinion, but I wondered how others thought. I think it follows in the theme you were saying before about like, okay, we got up here, but what are we doing different? I'm like, no, they're like, no, these brands are going to follow this up there. Of course, it's going to be like the first (laughs) thing that's there. Like, let's not pretend that that's not going to be a thing. But I think also, I think maybe I read that like some of them were like partners with them just like maybe in the development of the movie i'm not sure if they're getting like advertising money from them but like you know like a group like pan am or something might be able to actually help with you know getting some of the things that they needed in order to make some of the sets or like consulting but what did people think about like all the sort of zero gravity effects and things like that the practical effects were fantastic i mean if you stare at them long enough you can kind of figure out how they did them with cameras affixed to what must have been rotating stages or or something along those lines but still cool i mean we all freaked out when christopher nolan did it with inception like 50 years later but like it's, it's it's the exact same thing here and it works extraordinarily well trying to remember some of the behind the scenes stuff because there there were a lot of pretty elaborate sets weren't there yeah and a lot of as kevin correctly divined uh lots of rotating sets like the whole you know later on the you know the jupiter mission that ship yeah discovery one and i remember it was like a really big deal that the flight attendant grabs the pen out of the air like i was trying to remember about that i found that particularly impressive yeah there was there were one or two like zero g effects that were clearly just things on strings but it didn't seem like the pen was one of those or it was extraordinarily well done if that's all it was i've read that that was attached to like a pane of glass 
maybe hmm. like oh. the back end of a pane of glass which so they could then rotate relative to the set or whatever to make it look like it was floating so if she was like on the other side of that might have just been able to grab it depending on how well it was affixed okay which i didn't know I mean, it's, yeah yeah I, I think every time i've watched this movie strangely that's like one of the things that really surprises me every time it's like oh that pen looks really cool forget about the spaceships Well, one of the things I read was that Kubrick was trying really hard to have as many of the effects as possible be sort of in camera rather than things that were like matted in or composited in post-production wise. And so, yeah, a lot of that stuff that you see is practical effects rather than just like, you know, matching in a bunch of like composite shots and stuff. And that was partly because he felt that like, as you reprinted stuff to make composite shots, like the film, the quality of the image degraded, and he was trying to avoid that. I did like uh, for all the zero G shots that the uh, the futuristic flight attendants were all wearing like space babushkas, so their <laughs> hair was not a factor. Yeah, it was a very practical <laughs> way to deal with yeah. that issue. I forgot about that. I, I I was like, maybe they're for like you know. I, I was trying to think. I was like, are they just like helmets? Like for. <laughs> <laughs> for it like, definitely, uh, you know, when you when you lose your balance or whatever and drift into a bulkhead, <laughs> definitely made me think about space balls. <laughs> yeah. Just like those helmets, yeah. But the boots too, like the little booties. I thought those were cool because that's just one shot, and you see her kind of like staggering across the ground, and they're like, "Oh, what does it say on them? Like they're space like, shoes or like grip, grip shoes or something?" Yeah, like, grip. And then it just kind of sets oh, your yeah, mind off of like. Them. Branded. Oh yeah, is it like special like Velcro-y type shoes that she's using? That's what kind of what it felt like, and that she had to be very careful about how she stepped down in order to not just float across the room. Yeah, yeah they're Pan Am grip shoes. I'm 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 checking the tape. I've got it. I've got <laughs> nice. it at the ready. If anyone needs any <laughs> questions, I was trying to figure out when the subtitle comes in because there actually isn't. I don't think there's any. I thought there was. It might just be a little yeah. after like the satellite shots. Yeah, I think it's a little later because it's not right at the bone scene, obviously, but it it must be somewhere later on. Part of the movie is great, too, because they were trying to be as accurate as they could be about how space travel might happen based on what we knew at the time. So, like, yeah, they'd have these giant rotating space stations, right? So to approximate gravity so that people could actually walk around or thinking a lot of these things through. And one of the things I actually find really striking and impressive is... The fact that there's no sound effects in space. Yeah. That anything we hear is either music or is something that the characters would hear like later on in the Discovery mission. Like you can hear the breathing when he's in the suit and stuff like that. The the breathing and the the flow of air for that yeah. whatever extended satellite repair scene made me again deeply anxious. I mean, they, they do <laughs> yeah. amazing things with the the soundtrack of this movie. I feel like my breathing was voluntary through that entire scene. <laughs> just, just like, I, oh, I forgot to breathe for a second. <laughs> I kept it's trying just, to match my breathing to it. I was like, oh man, he's yeah. breathing slower than I'm breathing right it's now. It's so perfect. And like when he leaves the the pod and like, I, d- I don't quite understand why he had to jump like 3000 feet through space. He couldn't have parked a little bit closer, but like his, <laughs> his breathing rate like elevates at that point. It's just, it's that yeah. little, like the attention to detail that just makes it perfect. But going back to the moon sequence with uh, Dr. Floyd, um, mm. it's the moment where they're like, they're having the briefing and like 
okay, well, something's going on, whatever, right? And then they go to the Tycho crater, and like then you see the monolith there that, uh, for at least the first time I was really watching, I was like, oh, I see what's happening now. Like before, it was just like, well, there's this weird hominid section, and now we're in space. What's going <laughs> <Yeah>. on? <laughs> yeah. And then there's suddenly, like, no like dots that connection to connect happens. until yeah. you. You're like, oh, I guess, I guess this is a normal sci-fi movie now. <laughs> you know, it's almost like this sequence is the only thing that kind of dates it or makes it feel a little bit like, yeah, this is the '60s future. Because I mean, there's other things too, like later on, but you know, this having like the most dialogue and all that. It was like, oh, I guess we're just it's a slightly normal sci-fi movie now, but yeah. not the case at all. It even kind of feels like in that section, and then when they're watching the TV show later on the Jupiter mission, that that's the section where Kubrick's like, all right, well, we have to put some info dump in. Let's just do it all at once. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I can go back and do what I want. <laughs> I mean, they gotta, they, they gotta entertain themselves with something on this ship. <laughs> Watching BBC on their really nice tablets. Yeah. That was actually a thing that struck me this time was like, Oh, they have like, ipad equivalents here they're <laughs> ibm branded but you know <laughs> right right yeah <laughs> I mean, <laughs> these personal tablets yeah it was that was actually really i mean a little forward really thinking for 2001 but like the year 2001 but relative to like what we actually got but then i guess all of this is so objection withdrawn <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I, I didn't think about it until i read this either but i mean in order to do that then you basically have to project an image onto the tablet <laughs> from like a camera somewhere else too yeah they're so like oh, oh yeah i guess that is how they would <laughs> they didn't have the tablet mm. so <laughs> oh what? there's they a projector somewhere a, yeah <laughs> they didn't have like an lcd screen that they just you know <laughs> oh, <wait. laughs> but yeah i really like that the reveal of the monolith there and then the way you get the similar shot at the end of that sequence to the one of like the discovery of the monolith at the dawn of man where it's like the monolith and then like like a crescent shape of some sort whether that's the moon or the earth depending on which shot you're talking about and then like the sun like i thought that was visually very impressive yeah it's one of my favorite scenes because i know what i always thought when i saw that scene like what happens at the very end of it and then i read a little bit afterward and i was like oh that makes more sense what do you think happened when they touch the monolith. When they touch the monolith, nothing. At the right. end of this particular but, scene. Yeah, like at the moon scene. The yeah. moon. And then yeah, like the sound comes up and they're all like like grabbing yeah, for their like, helmets, like they're about to pull off their helmets or something. Yeah, I feel like I I think I know. You what probably do. Happened. It was probably me just being a little bit thick headed about it. The, it's not this it's almost like this monolith is not really the same as the other monoliths. Because it's more of like a beacon pointing to the next point of enlightenment right. or whatever. Right. So like they, so he doesn't touch it and like, you know, isn't flooded with like the history of the universe or whatever. It's more just like, okay, time to transmit to Jupiter now. Right. It's the sound thing that got me, which was like, I read and I was like, oh yeah, it's just, it's sending a radio frequency and it's like messing with all the equipment in their helmet and just put it, putting out a really high pitch. So every time before this, I saw that, I was like, oh, their heads are about to explode or something. <laughs> oh, <laughs> scanner style. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the aliens or, you know, whoever the the beams that left this behind meant no harm. They just, you know, it's just a, a quirk of our equipment. <laughs> right. Up. They didn't right. consult with the FCC first. <laughs> <no harm. laughs> but yeah, I thought it was the sunlight that triggered that. 
and that's why you got uh-huh. that shot of the sun showing uh-huh. it is because uh-huh. someone has uncovered the monolith and now it can be exposed to sun and that's the trigger yes it was yeah. oh that is yeah uh, I, I think, didn't think about that. Maybe that's explicit. I just thought a pretty shot of the sun, but that yeah. makes sense now. Yeah, that's supposedly what does it. It's like solar power to them. It sends out the signal, and the signal just messes with their equipment and puts out a high pitch. But it like seemed like cuts right after that. So you're like, what happened to them? So thankfully, we, we see his pre-recording and know that, yeah, huh. that Floyd was A-OK because he was able to pre-record that <laughs> right, tape for right. the Jupiter mission. <laughs> Kevin, do you have anything you wanted to add? I'm, I'm trying to think quiet. of what to add. Honestly, I forgot about the the high pitched noise thing. Uh, the the thing I remember near the end of this whole segment was, and I don't know, maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but I thought it was funny that they all posed for a picture in front of it, like, <laughs> oh know, yeah, just for how hugely advanced this is. It almost kind of ties back to how the the apes, the the hominids, were reacting. Where first they just freak the hell out about the monolith, and then they actually kind of start poking and investigating. Like the fact that our initial instinct is to take like a, a selfie in front of it just seems so <laughs> yeah. unevolved relative to the like scope and scale of what has been uncovered here. That I don't know. It was it just kind of funny to me. Classic, you know, classic human vanity. Like exactly, I, I did this. You know? <laughs> And even um, it kind of the this whole segment brings back the tribalism of the, uh, you know, the the different groups of hominids Mm, early on where like um, both in um, Dr. Floyd's interaction with his his, you know, former colleagues early on who are kind of pressing him for information. Who the uh, the Russians? Yeah. Who he's kind of Soviets at this point. He's (laughs) giving them no information whatsoever, but not denying like the lie that they've disseminated. And then when (laughs) they explicitly say, you know, like, yep, we're lying to everyone because, you know, (laughs) this is this is now American (laughs) uh, crazy futuristic, whatever the hell you want to call it. Like, I just there were a lot of of fun parallels to the to the opening section. I I liked, too, in the um, briefing where they say, yeah, we have to actually figure out a way to adjust everyone's expectation on Earth. The fact that there might be an alien species instead of just telling them it's like we have to work <laughs> up to that so we're not telling anybody right now yeah actually it's kind of funny because because i'm i feel like i'm you know it's been a long time since i've watched this but you know like comparing the you know like the bone and then you know comparing to the potential nuclear satellites and that sort of thing i'm realizing i put way more of like a star trek future on this movie as a teenager than i would now <laughs> like i'm like oh yeah they're in space like they, it's like you know great the future of humanity but really it's more about still about you know international intrigue and secrecy about americans discovering something i don't think that's wrong though paul especially because i mean all of this stuff is either you know subtle or could have multiple interpretations right i don't think it's most of the times i've watched this movie i've kind of felt that way like oh suddenly we're in space and you know we have sort of a sense of awe about everything it's like wow we you know really can accomplish something like this so i don't think you can really go too much in the opposite direction where you're like oh no we're all horrible either (laughs) and you know i think it's hard in 2022 to separate ourselves okay (laughs) corporate space like travel wasn't like a dystopia back then you know (laughs) the idea of it wasn't you know now the idea of brands in space is just Elon Musk, you know, so it's, uh, 
Chica. We just <laughs> slide into orbit for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you know, like, oh, okay. Well, I guess they were still, you know, they did this in 2001. It was still kind of a utopia compared to what we ended up with. So, you know. <laughs> One other thing I like, I don't know, I, I also, since I have to mention every Ligeti piece in this uh, <laughs> movie, I really like the space travel scene from it must be across the surface of the moon after... Or it must be his voyage from... From the base to the crater? Is that what you mean? Yes, yes. From the moon base to, yeah, out to the crater. And that sequence, like, of it just, like, silently, the ship, you know, kind of zooming over the lunar surface. And just that kind of mundane little bit of exposition while they're, like, drinking coffee and eating crustless sandwiches. I really like the the piece there, too, which I think yeah. Lexi Turner, which... Uh, really foreshadowing for the uh for the monolith being exposed to the light right yeah oh or is that what does that mean is it light eternal, eternal? Light. okay yeah, light eternal. <laughs> so i had the cd as a as a youngster and listened to it a lot and so i got to know all these pieces in intimately uh outside of the movie so i'm always like a fan of like that this one and atmospheres which i think is the overture and maybe the um, intermission music as well. Yeah, and Requiem. Sure. But uh, yeah, shout out to that. Uh, I feel it. like I don't really have, yeah, to that track. I, I don't really have anything insightful to say about it, but it's, uh, well, it's a good, good track. <laughs> yeah, just like we've been saying, like, you know, the music is a very important part of this movie, despite the fact that it's not specially composed music. Yeah, it's almost, yeah, like there's a lot of times it. I kind of feel like I'm like, wow, this is basically one of my favorite two and a half hour music videos. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah, that probably brings us to the third segment and probably the most accessible from like a movie going point of view, right? And which is the, the scenes aboard Discovery One as they're heading to Jupiter, where you get actual people interacting and a bit of suspense and things like that with HAL 9000 and such. Real conflict. And here's but where... Uh, the two actors that Paul met show up. Yeah. Here delay and uh, Star Trek's Gary Lockwood. <laughs> real, real nice guys. Yeah. I got to I got to dig out my autograph and put, put it on the wall. At this point, they put up the title Jupiter Mission 18 months later, which I forgot it was that quick of a turnaround from the moon mission. I don't know why I got it in my head that it was like years later, mm. but impressive turnaround for a mission of that undertaking. I agree. And at first I thought they were going to suggest that like interacting with the, the second monolith caused technological advancement to the point where they were able to launch it, but it did not seem to be where they were going with that. Yeah. It's like, Oh, well maybe in a different uh, scenario where humans somehow discovered the monolith earlier than their capability going to Jupiter, they would have had to wait on their own without any artificial <laughs> alien enlightenment. <laughs> they would have had to, you know, wait like, I don't know, 50 or 60 years to mount a sustainable Jupiter mission. <laughs> but so the fact that it's 18 months later, does that mean now it's 2002, the Space Odyssey? Mm. Or is this part 2001 and that was 2000? Charlie, answer the question. These are what the people want to know. <laughs> it was 2000. Now it's 2001. Because the real Odyssey is at the end of the movie, right? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say all Maybe. the all the it's stuff all is in 1999. Oh, <laughs> I thought the real Odyssey was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> <laughs>
was the was the colleagues we murdered along the way. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Hal. Hal 9000, who, as many reviewers pointed out, seems to be more human than the actual human astronauts, Dave Bowman and, and Frank Poole, in that Hal seems to be exhibiting symptoms of, like, paranoia and deceitfulness and things like this. And I wondered what people thought about that. Pride and boastfulness. Uh, Pride, boastfulness, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very, I mean, it really kind of highlights, I don't know, it's, it is kind of interesting, because it makes you, makes you kind of think back on every human that you've seen in the movie so far, and how, like, straightforward they've all been, how, like, not really expressing any particular strong emotions or expressions. I think it was Keir DeLay who said that when he was trying to decide how to portray the character, that they had decided that the two guys that were going to be awake especially were kind of unflappable. Like they, that's why they had been chosen for the mission especially. And so yeah. that often they could just kind of look at each other. They knew each other so well, they could kind of look at each other instead of having certain explicit conversations, like when they were going to go into the pod to talk later. And so that's kind of why you don't see as much happening with them emotionally, at least at the beginning. They're really, they're two peas in a pod. Right. And that doesn't or, take or away out of the yeah. pod, I suppose. That doesn't take away anything from what Adam <laughs> said. Just these are two particular people yeah. who, yeah, are not really exhibiting as much emotion as you would expect in that situation. I mean, and I think that carries forward until almost, you know, Dave's last scene with Hal. Like even after Frank gets killed, he's pretty Dave, that is, emotion free, even when he's trying to reason with Hal to let him back in. It's only really when Hal asks if he wants to hear him sing at the end that I noticed much of a emotional response. And I guess I didn't know what we were supposed to take from that. Yeah, I guess just watching um, Dave Bowman's reactions. And I don't know why this is the thought occur- that occurred to me, but it was just like, oh, I guess this is what happens when Hal f- around and found out. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I want to ask Kevin this question in particular just because everyone else has seen the movie multiple times and then maybe has read stuff but kevin why did hal do what he did why did he essentially go crazy i i have absolutely no idea i mean (laughs) like it i i thought in dialogue it was somehow implied that it was related to the fact that he was trying to keep a secret from these guys but i i really beyond that i would need to watch this movie another couple times to get a firm opinion on exactly why that happened well then i open it up to the floor what do you think i I think that's pretty close in that he was keeping a secret and essentially received conflicting instruction instructions so it's not like he was wrong about human error necessarily it was just the instructions he received as a purely logical being were incompatible it seems early-ish in in this phase of the movie that he even kind of wants to steer. I don't remember if he's talking to Dave or Frank at this time. He Dave, wants to steer them towards being suspicious of what this whole mission is about, which right. would directly contradict his orders to not tell them. So uh, again, that's I, I assumed it was some sort of error related to that. Now, why that drives him to murdering everyone, I can't really speak to, but, I mean, 1960s robots problems, I guess. I mean, the theory might just be that because the HAL 9000s have never made a mistake, he has the pride of that and doesn't want people to learn about the mistake. So he has to get rid of the witnesses. So you really, like, 
your interpretation is he is actually exhibiting true human emotions as a result of this error. He actually is prideful, not just, you know, I don't even uh, want to say braggadocious, like stating facts that happen to sound really good about the Hell 9000 series. Yeah, I don't know if I actually want to go that far. I mean, part of the issue is I think I am just influenced a by all the movies that came after this, but also like be various episodes of Star Trek. Sure. Or like sure. there's the original series uh, episode where like a computer is running the Enterprise and it starts killing all the other ships. And that's because the programmer had imprinted his memory engrams on it. This is the ultimate computer uh, season two, episode 23. 24 fact fans. Um, (laughs) And so like, maybe that's why I'm sort of part of the reason I'm imprinting these sort of human emotions and behaviors on Hal is because I just have been influenced by other things. I I hear you. Frank and Dave should have just been goofy dumbasses to kill the computer as uh, tended to be the case in Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) I took it as, well, so Hal says, at some point towards the end, like I didn't want you to jeopardize the mission, but I mm-hmm. don't believe him. I actually, I've always taken this to be that he's that Hal's afraid to do the mission, that he is sentient and doesn't want to die essentially. So mm-hmm. he's trying to find a way to kill them. Like the air is on purpose. Like he's trying to lure them out of the ship so he can eject them, which is what he eventually does. So it's not that he made the error. It's like he made the error on purpose and didn't expect them to like double check the error with another HAL computer. But that, that's my interpretation of it, but there's no way to really know because HAL doesn't say. One of the only other notes I wrote, other than product placement ones, <laughs> was that it feels like a very 60th thing for this computer to not have a run self-diagnosis, like a diagnostic <laughs> test. <laughs> Be like, oh, okay, a problem happened. Is there a failure in a circuit somewhere? Why don't you check? Just like, nope, he's infallible. <laughs> we see it too, though, that when he is being taken offline, like there's, I don't know, there's some sort of emotion there. There's some sort of sentience where he's pleading to not be killed, right? See, he's got a I, sense of yeah, self-preservation. Yeah. He's pleading for his life. So I that's thought of there. that. I thought of it as more of a survival instinct. And I liked the way that entire, like, portion of the movie from when Dave gets back into the ship to when he makes it to, like, Hal's inner workings, where, like, Hal kind of goes from just very matter-of-factly, like, Dave, what are you doing, Dave? To, like, you know, escalating to, like, Dave, you're killing me. Like, Dave, like, this hurts. Or I I don't remember all what he says. But stop. I'm scared. (laughs) Completely emotionless. But to me, I don't know that I ever really believed that he was feeling scared. He just like, this is the next step of what I can try to keep Dave from shutting me off. Because my goal is to keep from being shut off here. Yeah. You know, and it's almost like, yeah, like they almost almost like he deliberately wants us to wonder, you know, like, yeah, it sort of brings up like, what's the difference between like seeming like he's got a survival instinct and actually having it? Aside from, like, being how... And just... Sorry, I just don't want to go past this part without just noting that the voice of Hal is an actor named Douglas Rain, who does an excellent job at this sort of, like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Flat, just largely inflectionless, but not completely inflectionless delivery. Yeah, one of the, the... Probably the most, like, subtle performance you can 
be tasked in having. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, they did an amazing. I mean, the voice carries it, but even just like these still shots of Hal's eyes, like they 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 do amazing yeah. work creating this character from the barest bones you can have to create a character with. Yeah. You know, in that interview in the beginning, where it kind of they kind of ask, like, do you think Hal actually has emotions? And uh, Bowman, I think, says. Yeah. He says, you know, well, he certainly seems like he does or something to that effect. Like, not really giving a definitive answer, but, you know, thinking about how it's kind of interesting because when they're in the pod, like, talking to each other about possibly, you know, disconnecting how, how, uh, Poole brings up, like, I don't think he's going to like it. Like, almost is actually kind of, it, it seemed to me like he almost believed in his head that, like, yeah, maybe he is, like, sentient. Mm-hmm. Like, may, maybe it's, you know, like, because, the fact that he brings it up, like, if, if he wasn't sentient at all, you know, and he was, I guess you could make the argument that he was saying Hal isn't going to like it, only because that would maybe have the practical effect of them running into, like, obstacles of, like, Hal trying to, like, keep them from shutting him down. But, I don't know, it, I almost took it to be like, oh, he actually does kind of think there's something, there's some consciousness there, and he's actually, like, considering the humanity of Hal a little bit. And the same thing where he's like, yeah, when uh, Poole at the end, when he's disconnecting him, actually asks him to sing the song, like almost as a, as like, a, I don't know, like a form of like mercy or something. Or he, like, he was comforting you know, him. Almost. Yeah, exactly. Like, like it felt a lot more like a act of, you know, euthanasia or something than like a cold blooded murder of this murderer machine. <laughs> like no hard feelings, Hal, but I got to shut you down. Mm-hmm. Side note on that interview you referenced earlier, in real time, that must have taken like 15 hours. What did they say the the lag was between each question? Like seven and a half minutes each way? Yeah. <laughs> and it was it was an extended interview and the the actors did not appear to have moved from their position like each time it cut back and forth from BBC <laughs> to uh, just that. Oh, yeah. That mildly entertaining. Yeah, they must have they must have uh, pre-recorded the halves. That's my guess. I would hope, yes. That You'd would be hope. the most efficient way to do it. <laughs> Not just film it over the course of half a day. <laughs> I could. I, what I really like about having Hal in this movie is I read something earlier today. I think they were – we weren't talking about this movie. I think they were talking about – is that chat GPT? Is that what that's called? The, yeah. The yeah, chat yeah, bot? Yeah. And somebody in this opinion piece saying like, yeah, I, the humans aren't really capable of – making something that doesn't have all of our faults in it. And that's what I really like about Hal. It's like, I, I feel like he is sentient and like we've created it and it's just like us and he's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> he's just the worst. He's perfect. Yeah. It's like, how? <laughs> it's like, this is the best we can do is just recreate ourselves and all of the horrible things that come with it. But that kind of ties us back to the bone you know, the argument I was making yeah. that there was good functionality to it, you know, survival, uh, protection, and obviously the bad warfare style. I mean, Hal, obviously, there's a lot of good he does. He runs this entire spaceship, but he does still have our failings. And unfortunately, those are the murdery failings. I mean, <laughs> everybody's uh, tried to cover for a mistake <laughs> at work, you know, sometimes it's <laughs> a light murder. <laughs> first offense <laughs> <laughs> oh i also it's is completely separate but i always think it's interesting that dave goes out to get frank like he feels that he has to do that 
mm-hmm. instead of just letting him fly through space forever. Did did he yeah, know only have he to was let him go later? <laughs> yeah, did he know he was dead? Like I, I, I we do, I guess, because we kind of see the air rushing we out definitely of the tube. Do. Yeah, maybe he doesn't, but or maybe it's just like you know you hold on to that hope. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I know. To me, it seemed almost like yeah, like a revert to training thing where he's like, all right, alive or not, I have to retrieve. Yeah, yeah, retrieve my crew member. There's two phone calls in in the movie. There's the one that uh, that's made on the moon to Haywood. Is that his last name? That's his first name, actually. First name. That's hell of a first name. <laughs> Good old Haywood. 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 That Haywood makes to his daughter, and it's either on or extremely near his daughter's birthday. And then later in the the Jupiter mission, I think it's Frank. It could have been Dave, but he gets a phone call from his parents about his birthday like it seems like an intentional inclusion to make it birthday centric both of those calls or i I don't know it just seems like it was done intentionally is there anything that we're supposed to draw from that or does kubrick just like birthdays and (laughs) he like i'll be honest i never do that connection until now i think it probably means something but i haven't had time to think about it it does seem like it's got to be quite intentional but you know, is it is he saying that, you know, hey, isn't it funny that we celebrate birthdays in it's space a very where human the Earth thing. rotation doesn't matter? <laughs> oh, yes, that too, that too. Uh. Extremely arbitrary in space especially, but yeah, like if it's just uh, drawing contrast, I guess, between humanity and technology as, I guess, embodied by Hal, like that we fixate on these sorts of things that, yep, like we went around the sun again, let's buy some presents or whatever. I like presents. They are great. <laughs> Hal just wanted a present all along, hence the murderous <laughs> rage. I mean, uh, we yeah. How I can't, I can't remember Hal's birthday, but it was sometime in oh ninety two in nineteen yeah, yeah, yeah ninety two. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's really only nine years old. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So oh, child- we should really cut him some slack, you know. <laughs> what nine year old hasn't you know? killed four astronauts <laughs> and then just uh i know we've talked about it in the other sequences as well but just the zero gravity effects in this as well with like the space shots and stuff continually found that impressive as long along with the the rotating around them running around the outside wall i guess the outside interior wall of the mm-hmm. spaceship as it's spinning to generate gravity just yeah still found that stuff impressive yeah. especially because there's one shot where you see in the background like near the top of the frame you see pool sort of upside down yeah while dave bowman comes out of a like an elevator or something like at like perpendicular to him and like walks down a like a ladder and then goes around to him or something that i was trying to figure out what they did like, Wait, is that the scene? Is one of them sitting down in that yes. scene? I, yeah. I, my guess was he was strapped in somehow. Like that was <laughs> yes. that was all yeah. I could. He's figure. just like upside down. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, I know for the, the running scene. It. Yeah. Wow. The running scene where he's running around the centrifuge. That's what they did. Like he's running, but the other guy is strapped into his seat mm-hmm. for at least yeah. the partial rotation that they do. Oh, and I was just again going to agree. The the inf- the effects are incredible. I mean, they they hold up to date and it's what 60 i guess more than 50 years later 
having just watched this for the first time, I mean, everything from the model work, every now and then you could tell they used a little bit of green screen, like like looking inside the windows of the ships, and that looked a little yeah. dated, but yeah, everything that's like, else. That's the only time I really noticed, like, kind of like those artifacts, like the slightly jiggly windows or whatever, when, like, say, the moon yep. uh, pod is landing or that sort of thing. Yeah. But, like, it's almost like the in a lot of ways, you know, the effects feel way more realistic than almost every modern sci-fi movie. If you think about it, it should get you every time that, like, this is a movie in 68, so the moon landing had not happened yet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That does kind of blow my mind, especially with the moon scenes. Yeah, I think yeah. Kubrick's saying, like, how happy he was that they got correct or at least reasonably correct what the earth would look like from that far away hmm. <laughs> or, or that they were constantly getting like shots from nasa like updated like shots of craters on the moon and stuff that they could use for references oh, yeah because really like cool. at what point would did we actually send like did we get some unmanned photos from that distance yeah i guess we would to... have yeah at least a year but i don't that. know when yeah. those came in you know given the production of the movie would have been well before let's see we the manned orbit of the moon apollo 8 is christmas 68 i think yeah so that's even you know that's but i don't know what sort of unmanned stuff they might have sent out and take yeah they wouldn't have had access yeah Yeah, but it wouldn't have been much earlier i think just given the pace of the apollo program yeah so i'm trying to think if it would have been like maybe Apollo 7 or something. It's hard to know because some of the early Apollos are just like test phases where they're just like, they're testing the rocket or they're testing the lander, like just stuff like that. That's not necessarily manned. But obviously they would have had to, yeah, photograph the moon for like potential landing sites and stuff. I don't know. I really like the beginning of the Jupiter scene with, uh, I don't know if you guys, uh, any of you guys have the soundtrack pulled up, but whatever violin piece that is as like, you sit and watch the the uh, oft parodied uh, introduction to the ship. That oh. is <laughs> Guyane, looks like by uh, Aram Kachaturian. That's okay. that is it. Sorry, that's the Adagio from Guyane, which is a ballet suite, apparently. Oh, okay. That's what I was. I was trying to remember. I, that makes sense. That it's a ballet. Uh, I just there's something about that kind of seeing the ship slowly scroll by with that song and then you know going to uh you know pool doing his jogging it's like really really captured the uh, isolation of deep space very very well yeah in that moment kind of like how when they when they pull back like so when there's like especially when there's shots where the ship is like far in the distance and you almost get a little bit of a sense of scale like oh yeah they're like way out there and there's a couple asteroids that go by and you're like oh yeah they're traveling through the asteroid belt you know the thing that in other sci-fi movies you'd think of a crowded you know empire strikes back style asteroid (laughs) field but it's like oh yep that was a close call with those that were you know with those two asteroids that passed by you know 10 kilometers away or whatever (laughs) (laughs) and then just in this section speaking of the music um obviously the famous part where hal sings a bicycle built for two yes still my favorite rendition <laughs> really like the drop at the end you know? paul doesn't even know how the song ends <laughs> it's the only one to listen to you know for a very long time that was that was very true <laughs> but but then i saw at the riverwalk theater uh, 
the, I saw how uh, finished the song. <laughs> it's like, no, you can't kill me yet. It's just my moment to shine. I'm finishing the song. I mean, in that production, he really, you know, he dies with much more of a bang, you know? He's like, nah! You know, like, uh, he finishes the song as, like, the steam comes up and fills his uh, his glass pod that he stood in when he was, was seeing Hal. Was Hal a person wearing, like, a cardboard box with a big red circle drawn on it? Or, like, what was the effect <laughs> of Hal? He was, uh, he was a, a middle-aged to older man in like a black turtleneck and black pants. Wait, and you actually was, saw him? <laughs> yeah. I would have just figured to be off stage. No, he was a guy. Yeah. We, <laughs> 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 he was in basically a shower, like a shower stall of like, you know, acrylic or plastic or whatever. He was, he was, he was a man in a tube. <laughs> Adam, now I'm upset because we should have made this. <laughs> you and me. <laughs> And we, and you know, and we could have, we could have been <laughs> part of this. Do is there any point in mentioning the three people in suspended animation who were murdered? Yeah, I don't think we mentioned <laughs> that, but I don't know what else to say about it. They were pretty much there to be murdered. I mean, that was their their function, and and to be drawn like one of uh, one of Bowman's French girls. Oh yes, um, yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> Oh, I'm really upset that when I Google 2001 A Space Odyssey stage play that nothing comes up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is a deep cut, you know. This is, this is a 22-year-old Lansing history here. <laughs> but what did come up was this uh, article from three days ago titled How to Pretend You've Seen Some of the Best Movies Ever Made. <laughs> <laughs> that includes 2001. <laughs> Finally, some online advice I could use. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, actually, so the, the the murder scene, you know, for like basically nothing happening, it feels like like really pretty grisly murder scene. To be honest, I don't know what it was about. Like you know, it cuts to their faces, shows the life support. It just felt kind of drawn out, and uh, yeah, you know, you really feel the uh, cold, calculated. I feel like that was the closest this got to a horror movie was was right about there when you're like, okay, he's killing everyone. I think the movie as a whole does a great job of, I mean, what feels at least for a movie to be drawing out everything. I mean, just like how I don't want to call it a slow paced movie exactly, but just like how inherently everything in space you do have to do very slowly and deliberately, like how long it took for them to repair the satellite dish. I mean, basically in real time, you watching Hal murdering these people. I don't know. I I liked it a lot. It just stood out to me compared to how pretty much every movie for the last 20 some years is paced. Yeah, I th- I feel like almost when I started this because I haven't, I don't think I've watched the whole thing all the way through in like quite a few years, and it took me a while to get into the pace of it again. Like I was like, oh, I think my brain has been broken since middle school. Like, how did I have the attention <laughs> as a twelve year old to watch this movie all the way through? And then you know I got used to it eventually. But what struck uh, me sort of maybe counterintuitively watching this time was just how similar the pacing of star trek the motion picture is to this movie yes <laughs> like more directly than i had remembered it being but where it's just like 
slow panning shots and strange effects coming at you kind of like in the sequence we're about to discuss so. <laughs> yeah like it also has a 20 minute light show at the, <laughs> right <with it. laughs> or at least the version i have on uh, uh blu-ray starts with an overture before the movie starts oh wow nice. yeah like it plays uh ilea's theme for like two or three four minutes it's against a star field instead of just black screen but it's before the the credits start and yeah that was what struck me about the pace was like oh yeah the motion picture is a lot like this pacing wise isn't it i made the exact same connection and the thing that i think i liked a lot more about 2001 though it has been a while since i watched uh, the motion picture uh, star trek I feel like in Star Trek, there were a lot more like shots of the cast looking like awestruck. And for some reason, those bothered the hell out of me. Whereas in 2001, they just kind of let the scenes speak for themselves. Like with the with the possible exception, I guess, of the 20 minute sequence at the very end. You're not like you're not constantly seeing like Dave reacting to the things. Um, yeah. You're no, just kind of letting the satellite float through space just for fun. And let's cut to another satellite. And now we're in a spaceship rotating slightly. Kubrick did a lot better of a job of presenting those extended shots, but just again, letting them speak for themselves, not showing us people acting super surprised and in awe. So we know we're supposed to be surprised and in awe of what we're seeing. Yeah, we should probably talk just in the interest of moving things along. We should probably talk about that final sequence, which I think was called Jupiter and Beyond to the Infinite, something like that. I thought it was Beyond Beyond Infinity or something. Yeah, I think it's Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. Correct. Yeah, some variation of that, which is completely dialogue free. And there's a 10 minute light show in the middle. And the part that always surprises me because I've read the book and I think I've seen part of the sequel, is that the famous line from 2001, it isn't in 2001, which is Dave Bowman saying, my God, it's full of stars. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm always surprised, like, that's not in this movie. So I guess I appreciate the scene of all the lights, but it's one of the things that I think doesn't quite hold up as much. It feels very 60s-ish. And a lot of the effects, too, you're like, oh, you know, they're putting oil or different chemicals in water and seeing how it floats around. And it's like, well, that looks cool, but, and it kind of looks like spacey, but it was, it was made for high people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to, to your point of the, the sixties ish, like this was, I think if you were high and watching this, this would have absolutely blown your mind. I yeah. Think- I think I'm more impressed by the slit scan stuff at the beginning, Yeah, which is, the stretched out light images and stuff. And I believe that's largely invented for this movie. I don't think it's primarily well, yeah. for this movie, but this is How like the first real use of it. So basically you have, it's an animation. Essentially you have like a camera mounted pointing at a table and then you have a slide. And then over top you have like a mat with a slit in it. And then I think it's something like the camera is at an angle or maybe you just move the camera so that it's focused on the slit where the image is showing through and then it moves it so that it stretches it out. That gets you one frame. Then you move the image underneath slightly and you do it again. Oh God. Oh wow. I'm going to have to find like a behind the scenes of that. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. So I know that the seventies time tunnel effect and the doctor who opening credits is a slit scan. I know that when the 
Enterprise D goes to warp in the next generation, the way it stretches out is the slit scan effect. Hmm. Uh, I was reading there's actually some slit scan effects in Interstellar. Oh. But yeah, I found that visually more interesting than highly polarized colored landscapes and yeah it's like okay that's earth and cloud tanks with yeah. different colors yeah I mean, yeah where i was <laughs> like oh hey it's and, monument valley and like what are they supposed to like and the question is like what would i put in there i'm like okay then all this is fine but i think it took me a few times watching the movie to kind of say like all right i'm not, not going to be critical of this i'm just going to watch it and i think that what really keeps the scene a little more timeless to me is the soundtrack to this part yeah, it might feel really 60s if there was like a, you know, twangy spy guitar going on in the background or something. <laughs> like, you know, but uh, it's really not that groovy. Like, But it's also very 60s in that it's pre-Star Wars, right? Like one of the things that Star Wars does for science fiction movies is it makes basically all the scores be John Williams style. That's, like, you know, very yeah. orchestral, very sort of... Straight out of uh, pretty much Gustav Holst's Mars. Yeah. Uh, Whereas, like, prior to that, like, you get a lot more weird stuff. Like, you know, you get theremins and atonal stuff and stuff like in this. And so in some ways, the fact that you get something like that here also kind of dates it a bit. And that it's like, oh, this is before Star Wars because the music's not just typical. Yeah, it's not, yeah, kind of a standard orchestral. It's, like, avant-garde. And this, this track, I think... I think it was a combination. I don't know what the the piece is called, but is this it may have been mashed atmospheres? up. Atmospheres. I thought atmospheres. For some reason, I thought that was the overture. But uh, I mean, it might be both, right? Actually, I mean, yeah, it might be like a repri- atmospheres. The overture might be like an abridged version, and this is like a more full version. And there was actually some other piece in there too, towards the end, like when he's in the room, that is like a altered version of the original so there was they actually did kind of alter some of these like because there's a part where you sort of hear voices but they're kind of like washed out and weird it sounds like people kind of going like in the background or something gotcha and i think like yeah on some of the soundtracks i heard the unaltered version of that and it's very it's very clear human voices so they did some sonic modification to this one when i first saw it i before reading the book, I thought, hey, that's really cool and really weird. And then once I read the book and, like, kind of mapped some of the things, even though they're pretty, like, abstract, like, onto what was happening actually with uh, Bowman. Like, the landscapes and stuff. I'm like, oh, you know, he's... Or, like, the weird, uh, crazy orb things. I don't mm-hmm. know. Do you do you remember very well what actually happened in that sequence in the book? No, I haven't read the book since possibly even middle school like not even high school i i think that's when i read it as well so it was a pretty long time ago for me but basically he's like you know intergalactically traveling and seeing all kinds of crazy stuff and he i think he essentially kind of goes to like what is basically you know intergalactic travel portal you know sees a lot of crazy stuff what is it stargate before stargate (laughs) <laughs> yeah I think it's called the stargate sequence <laughs> okay yeah and so like there's it's like things are actually happening and it kind of makes sense that it's like done a little more abstractly in this movie because you know well because it's a very visual movie um <laughs> <laughs> you, have to, but, you have to look at it <laughs> you really have to kind of look at it you have to listen to it too but you really mostly have to look at it and that scene if 
the way you see it can kind of make a difference too. Like I enjoyed it more actually in the theater where it's more enveloping you and you're kind of like, oh, trying to pretend like this is happening to me and these are the things that I'm seeing. But still, yeah, a little bit harder to to get into than a lot of the rest of the movie for me. You have have to really turn up loud and sit close to the screen to get the whole effect. Should be robo tripping. <laughs> that might be too much. <laughs> Grandma, what's happening? <laughs> and then so, how about that final scene? Yeah, I was just about to ask for those of you who've seen this more than once, how how literally do you take all of what happens in this entire last section? I mean, is this is this all just very abstract or is there a literal space baby floating around Earth at the end of this movie? Uh, I guess I never thought about towards... the literalness of this <laughs> I mean, I, I'd be leaning more towards the literal space baby if I had to pick one of the two. <laughs> the unfortunate thing about like doing even just the one hour of research I did reading about this movie is that some of that stuff like was actually either they talked about it before or maybe it's in the book. So supposedly what the space baby does... Yeah, like it's a new form of him, of Dave, right? And you can really see it. I I never looked for the similarity yeah. until this time, and I was and like, "Yeah, that looks like Dave." He gets there and decides that he doesn't want all the nuclear weapons surrounding Earth, and he detonates all of them. Like that's like something they might have potentially <sighs> added in. Oh, oh, not not included, but the original. Thankfully, intention. not included, okay. right? As yeah, <laughs> there's so many things that I'm like, "Oh, that's super interesting to read about now," but I wish I didn't know about that. <laughs> I actually found one of the interesting things to read about was contemporary reviews of the movie where some people found just the star child, the space baby, like really hopeful, like, oh, this is the next stage for mankind. And some people were like, oh, we're screwed because the space baby is coming to wipe out life on Earth. Like, ah, uh, fi- I can finally cut off this vestigial organ now that I've, now that humanity is finally <laughs> Look, that baby's, me. baby's half the size of Earth. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know how literally you're supposed to take that whole sequence, because it's obviously very, I don't know if surreal is the right word, but, you know, sort of abstract, abstract is definitely yeah. how I took it before I learned that apparently he was going to blow up all the nukes or whatever. <laughs> right. Well, I just mean, where yeah. he's yeah. like he's looking at himself, and they're in this weird neoclassical bedroom, except like with light panels on the floor, and yeah, watching himself in various stages. Yeah, which I feel like the novel. I, I'm trying to remember. Just always that guy being like, "Well, the book says it. In words, <laughs> you know, like, there's actually something happening here." <laughs> but I thought it was basically like that's like. That's the aliens creating, like, here's your normal human bedroom, child. Time for you to grow old and die so that you can evolve into the star child. So, yeah. again, very So he literal. may have spent years there. I'm not sure, though. Oh, and we just didn't, I forgot to mention at the start of the Stargate sequence, you get to see the monolith flying through space. And then, once more here, here's the monolith in his bedroom. It it's really just monoliths. became his his Disney princess analog animal sidekick. At the end. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did really like that. I don't know. There is really something about having it based, you know, the kind of the three acts of the movie, or I guess, I don't know, maybe it's four acts, I, I guess kind of sectioning off the whole last section to be like, all right, 
this one kicks off like we're in the monolith world now. I don't know. Really, you really feel like you leave behind all the silly details of being a human starting at that part of the movie. I feel like the the scene with just the monolith orbiting Jupiter just really drives it home. I find it really interesting that the Wikipedia article is like, at Jupiter, Dave finds a third, much larger monolith orbiting the planet. And I was like, how can you tell it's in space? <laughs> yeah. I assumed that the camera was like right next to it. The ship's right. like a long way. So it's not like, oh, look at how much bigger the monolith is than the ship. It's like, uh, <laughs> do you know like how perspective works? <laughs> I bet there's a whole argument about that in the in the notes. <laughs> I'll bet the novel explains it. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, that's true. It probably is like, yes, this monolith is. Then C. Clark tells you how many uh, kilometers it is. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of complaints about uh, name inconsistencies and the first paragraph's wording. But other than that, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, the first paragraph is the toughest. So yeah, I guess, what did you think in 2001? Like, is it a movie you'd recommend to people? Do you still enjoy watching it? Or if you're Kevin who watched it for the first time, did you enjoy watching it? What do I, you think? I did. I I enjoyed it quite a bit. And it's it's definitely a thought-provoking movie. Like, something that I want to watch a few more times to really... I mean, especially the last half hour or whatever. Just develop opinions on what the hell's going on. And, um, yeah, again, it makes me want to watch it again. It's no Red Sonia, but (laughs) it it was excellent. I mean, it is the best film I've watched this year and definitely one that I'll be coming back around to, you know, however frequently I can. Excellent. Yeah, I like the movie, too. Um, Part of me just wonders if that's just because I have a kind of like the slower, more epic movies. Part of me wonders how Tony would handle this movie because Tony feels to be very much like a modern movie kind of guy. Like, you know, he wants lots of action and comedy. And I don't know if he's really down with like long contemplative shots and things like that. But I really like it. Um, I'll make sure next time he comes over, I'll be like, we're going to watch this. Uh, that's what we're doing. <laughs> then he's gonna, <laughs> then he's gonna have you turn it off during the monkeys or the hominid scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This wasn't anything like the book. I, mean, I didn't know you read 2001. <laughs> it is a movie that kind of holds the audience at a bit of a distance, it feels like. Like, it's not necessarily a movie that really invites the audience in. But I think because it has that distance, it encourages you to think about it a little bit more philosophically, for lack of a better word. Like, you're not necessarily supposed to get everything out of it after your first or even second viewing. And I kind of I do appreciate that. I don't know that I want all science fiction movies to be like that, but I'm I'm happy that this one is like that. Mm-hmm. I say move over, Star Wars. We don't need you anymore. Uh, dude, it's, <laughs> it's all all long <laughs> contemplative shots. <laughs> no, it's uh, I'm a huge fan of this movie. Wait, are we rating these? No. No. Okay. Other than just like general, I enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy good. it. That kind of Although okay, that good. would would be uh, fun. Not, we're not great. <laughs> we're not, right. well, it would be fun to see everybody squirm to rate. <laughs> yeah. This movie. I mean, I would, like start I, out with a I, 10, I, a nine. <laughs> that is the thing. I would have to rate this a 10. Like it's too, you know, or is this it a five. Kind of feels first like, movie. all right, rate your life, you know, rate your uh, childhood or whatever, <laughs> you know, like, I guess it's great. You know, like, it, it was nice to come back to it and watch the whole thing after a nice 
pretty pretty long break of not having seen it since I think it was the theatrical re-release that was the last time I watched this. And I think that was just the right amount of time for me to revisit, you know, a very, what was, I guess, a very formative movie for both my sci-fi interests and also my love of bizarre music that it kicked off. Because <laughs> uh, it really, you know, as a teenager, it really expanded my horizons when I was like, who is Liggity? And then, like, looked up other, you know, weird stuff. The 2001 to Mersbo pipeline is real. What's Mersbo? I don't oh, know what that is. He's a noise musician, I guess. Makes very weird, noisy music. Like music concrete or something different? I don't totally know what that is, but I would say yes. That's like the found sound music? Um, It's a little more like electronic noise. Take the beat and like the pleasant tones out of EDM and, you know. You just like, oh, what are noises that can be made with with synthesis? I guess. Well, I'm sure it'll be in the blog for ten. <laughs> yeah, that was just you know, I don't know why why that came up. I think because it was you know when I was like looking in the modern classical that I ended up yeah looking up various less you know types of music that would just that I hadn't really thought of as like music before. But uh, in the same way, I think that, you know, it expanded my horizons in, uh, in uh, movies as well at the time. But uh, me now still really likes it, really holds up. It's very visually stunning and, uh, yeah, still love it. This is one of my favorite movies. I have a uh, DVD collection of Kubrick movies, and this is one of the ones that's on it. It doesn't just love the fact that there's so many interpretations to what's going on, which is kind of, again, why I didn't. I liked researching it, but I didn't like researching and finding out maybe there were more concrete answers that just weren't put in. But just all of us discussing it, all coming up with different ideas than I had had watching it. You know, unlike maybe some of the other movies that we've reviewed, where I could say like, "No, you're wrong." Like, I like my way better. Like, this is one where you can't really say that. You're like, "No, that makes perfect sense." Like, it could be any of these ways, and it's just visually stunning, and the music's fantastic. And I think watching it in the theater, I mean, there's probably not many opportunities to do that but if you have a chance to do it do it cool well thanks everyone for listening to our first episode here of the sci-fi shuffle uh kevin what do you think we should watch next i'm gonna throw it to you i would love to watch arrival by guy whose name i can't pronounce correctly dennis something with a v denis Villeneuve. i wasn't even close <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I got it right, but I think I was closer. Uh, yep, but that's uh, that's my pick. If that sounds good to everyone All right, else, yeah. Arrival. Yeah. Oh, you just want me to pull out my linguistics cards. I have never seen it, so I don't oh, even know what that's okay. a reference to. Oh, okay. Well, then it's, I I don't want to say anymore. But all I right, Arrival that. next. Fantastic. Yeah, I haven't uh, I haven't seen it either, and I, I I forgot that I wanted to watch that. It's been so, out of my list perfect. for a while. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I already know what I'm going to pick, and it's it's not going to be exactly a thinky <laughs> space movie. <laughs> I'm picking Time Cop. <laughs> Why not? I don't know. That sounds, anytime there's time involved, <laughs> I feel like it becomes a thinky. <laughs> <laughs> so same thing for Demolition Man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've heard of the talkie. Now try the thinky. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, thanks for listening to us discuss 
2001 and what I assume is going to be in the extended episode. So thanks for sticking with us through the uh, two hours that this podcast ended up being. It won't be as long as the film. <laughs> we promise that for every episode, yeah. it will not be as long as the film. <laughs> uh, well, we okay, once did fine. a trip to the moon for cinematic respect, and it was an hour long episode. Oh, that's true. That was fun. When, yeah. the, when the movie, I think, is 10 minutes. Yeah. And for another edition of the Gobeski Wallace Report, my name is Charlie Wallace. And I'm Adam Gobeski. And a very special thanks to our two guests for this episode. We had Paul Wilcox. It was a pleasure. And Kevin Vredevoke. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I'm looking forward to Arrival, a movie I've not seen since theaters. And I will not give any other indications about it. I I don't want to bias anyone one way or another. Very much appreciate that. Other than to say it's hot garbage and not. (laughs) It's a piece (laughs) of. Thanks again for joining us on another episode of the Kobeski Wallace Report. You can check us out on Facebook or Twitter if you'd like. And of course, you can visit our website, www.kobeskiwallacereport.com, which features all of our previous episodes. So you can reminisce about the time that Charlie was attacked by a beaver. I don't think that happens. So many memories. Ten million years. Estimated time for full recovery of biodiversity after a potential Holocene extinction. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Six hundred million years in the really future. Not that Tidal acceleration away. moves the moon far enough from Earth that total solar eclipses are no longer possible. Oh. 1.3 billion years in the future, eukaryotic life dies out on Earth due to carbon dioxide starvation. Is there any happy oh. stuff that happens in the future, or is it mostly just extraordinarily I grim? Mean, I, um, I feel like it just really depends on how you look at it. Coral reef <laughs> extinction. <laughs> like the sun swallowing the Earth might be great news. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, wow. I guess I don't know what you want. I the mean, sun's want... luminosity will have will have increased by ten percent in a one point one billion years. The moons of Uranus causing the Earth's surface temperature to reach an average of one hundred sixteen Fahrenheit. Three point six billion years in the future, Neptune's moon Triton falls to the planet's uh, how do you say this Roche limit, uh, potentially disintegrating into a planetary ring system. Wow. 6.6 billion years, the sun may experience a helium flash, resulting in its core becoming as bright as the combined luminosity of all the stars in the Milky Way. Oh, dear. Wow. All right, now I see, I like see what the last thing is. The Andromeda galaxy in 5 billion years will fully merge with the Milky Way, forming a galaxy dubbed M- Milkometa. <laughs> 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 like I'm glad that we went ahead and named that. Like 